is speaking in tongues? Is it a private prayer language? Is it a foreign language? Is it appropriate for today's churches? This is Jerry Johnson live from the Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio, Texas. We'll debate this issue in just a moment with two leading Southern Baptists. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Your host is Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College in Dallas. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jerry Johnson. If you're a Christian, does your church, do you practice speaking in tongues? Is that a foreign language? Is it a private prayer language? Is it appropriate in the church worship service? And in the context of Southern Baptist life, we're broadcasting live from the Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio, Texas. In the context of Southern Baptist life, is it appropriate for our agencies and institutions to have a policy on this matter? We're going to talk about it today with two leading Southern Baptists. Dr. Russell Moore is Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and Pastor Dwight McKissick of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas, and also a trustee at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And we welcome the audience here and those listening live on KCBI, KCRN, and KSYE, all right here in this state of Texas and Oklahoma as well. And we've got a microphone here, and so when you hear a comment, uh, today, you feel like one of these men maybe didn't answer the question or you want to ask a follow-up question later in the program. We're going to open this up and let folks uh, ask questions. So hopefully you'll be brave and join in. But first, we're going to start with um, just some general thoughts because there are a lot of specifics about speaking in tongues that people want to talk about and we focus in on this issue or that. But I think it's very important in this kind of a dialogue. Uh, we called it a debate to draw a crowd, but actually it's going to be more of a dialogue here, okay, and a discussion. And we've got these two brothers here to talk about it. And uh, we want to start, though, with um, allowing these men just on their own terms without any really loaded question on my part to say, you know, here's what I believe. I want to put this thing in a larger context um, the New Testament or church history, however they want to lay it out. We'll start with uh, Pastor Dwight McKissick. Uh, thank God that you're with us here today and that you've agreed to come and, and uh, share your view. Pastor Dwight, tell us um, your view on speaking in tongues. Uh, is it a private prayer language, um, a foreign language? Is it right for today in the church? Let's just talk about that. Lay it on us. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. I'm honored and thankful that you've asked us to come today. 
and share, and it's because that this subject is tied with missions and evangelism, particularly in the context of our convention, that I wanted to come and share my beliefs that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, and it addresses the subject of praying in tongues in private. Uh, I believe a sovereign, holy spirit, when he deals with an individual, he only has the right to say what a person can or cannot do in their private prayer life. And it's my goal in this discussion today to give the biblical legitimacy and validity of believers gifted by the Holy Spirit to pray in tongues in private. I want to make it clear that it's not my belief that every believer has the gift of praying in tongues. Verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 makes that clear. It is not my belief that believers who pray in tongues are spiritually superior to believers who do not pray in tongues. That's more of a Pentecostal view, but it's not mine. It is not my argument that tongues is the evidence of the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Neither is my position that believers should pray in tongues publicly unless there is interpretation. My simple thesis is praying in tongues in private is a valid, vital, spiritual experience that the Holy Spirit equips certain believers with to edify the believer and the church to glorify and communicate with God uniquely in prayer for God's own sovereign purposes. And clearly in 1 Corinthians 14, the Bible addresses praying in tongues as speaking to God, speaking to God. And I find it difficult to understand uh, how some hold that praying in tongue is not a valid prayer when we see several times that it's addressed as speaking to God and not man. That's my position. Thank you. That was Pastor Dwight McKissick from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas. With us also, we have Dr. Russell Moore, Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Moore. And uh, as we were saying, we'll get into some specific questions back and forth in a minute. But sure. I thought it would be great in just opening up to let you kind of set your own agenda, that is, to say, you know, just generally, a larger context, what's your view on uh, tongues, glossolalia in the New Testament. Well, first I'd like to say it's good to be here with Brother McKissick. I love him, appreciate his ministry, and glad to have this time of dialogue. I'm a charismatic. You have two charismatics here with you. In, in, a, in a very real sense, every Christian is a charismatic. Yes. We believe the Holy Spirit has given gifts to the church. There Also, there's a sense in which almost every Christian is a cessationist. Almost every Christian would hold that, for instance, the gift of apostleship ceased with the apostolic era. There are some Christians and some charismatic groups that don't, but most of us do. And most of us understand that there are certain times in redemptive history in which there is a magnification of the work of God for a specific purpose. I think that when you have tongues in the New Testament, you have Acts 2, you have 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. Tongues is very closely linked to prophecy. The Apostle Paul links them together in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He also links tongues specifically to Isaiah chapter 28, God's demonstration, a sign of God's judgment upon an unbelieving Israel upon an unbelieving people, which is why I think the Apostle Paul spends so much time speaking of the use of tongues in the life of the church. Brother McKissick brought out, I think, rightly that the Apostle Paul says that a man who is a man or woman who's speaking in tongues speaks not to not to men but to God. But I think the problem is the Apostle Paul is saying that's a problem, is that this gift is given for the edification and the upbuilding of the church. 
So I really think the, the debate here is not between cessationists and non-cessationists. I think the debate is probably between cessationists and non-cessationists and those who hold to a private prayer language. I think that's the much more difficult case to be made. I suppose someone could say, I believe the gift of tongues is given even still today, but who would still say this isn't a private gift, a private prayer language, any more than you could speak of having, for instance, a private gift of mercy. This is something that is given to the life of the church. Now, why do I think this is given to the church in the New Testament? I think it's given specifically for what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, that the church is being built on the foundation of prophets and apostles. This is divine revelation. I don't think this is ecstatic utterance. I think that's why the Apostle Paul links tongues and prophecy together and why he speaks of the language of mysterion, of mystery, uh, words that, a word that he uses specifically to deal with divine revelation. In, for instance, Ephesians chapter 1, the mystery of Christ, and Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3, for that matter. So I think you have a sense in which God is showing through the use of tongues, which I believe are real human languages. I do not think there's a shift between Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Real human languages demonstrating that God's redemptive purposes now have gone to the nations. And that's why he says, if you, if you have speaking in tongues in which there is not an interpreter, where there's not the building up of the body, one is speaking to God, but he is not building up the body. It is something that he is not allowing to take place. He says you have to have the use of the gifts within the body for the upbuilding of the church. Must be a translator. And so I think that the issue of, of private prayer language is one that I don't see in the New Testament. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Well, let's just talk about this some more. Uh, I'm going to ask you for the first kind of a, and I want to do this with both of you, ask you the kinds of the questions that people that disagree with you might mm-hmm. ask. And let me just lay this one on you right now. Um, there are millions and millions and millions. I was asked this question on my radio program of Christians around the world that say, I have this experience of praying in uh, an unknown language, Mm -hmm. a secret prayer language, a Mm -hmm. private prayer language, an angelic language, something like this. Mm -hmm. And so I have to ask you, Dr. Moore, do you believe these people are demon-possessed? Do you believe they're deluded? Do you believe they're uh, crazy? Do you believe they're silly? Do you believe they're mistaken? What do you believe? What is the origin of this? If it's not biblical, what is it? Well, I think you could add to that, not just millions of Christians, but Jews and Hindus and members of various other sects and religions. Well, that's who a secondary point we in, want to discuss today, I think. And so I think the issue is, is this something that God has told us to do? I do not think that people who say, oh, I speak in tongues, I do not think they're demon-possessed. I'm not making that kind of an argument. What I'm saying is, is this something that God is giving to his church right now in this point in redemptive history? for the upbuilding of the church? And is it has it ever been a personal, private gift for the edification of the believer himself? And that's where I say the answer to that is no. I certainly don't say that someone who believes that he has a private prayer language is demonic or, or heretical or, or in any, any kind of a way an inferior Christian. Uh, I have many very close friends who believe themselves to have, have spoken in tongues and I receive them as brothers in Christ. Uh, I just think this is a mistaken interpretation of the New Testament. Uh, Brother McKissick, um, reacting off of what Dr. Moore said, um, it's pretty clear that the practice of glossolalia is not unique to Christianity. How do you deal with this idea that there are a lot of other world religions, a lot of cults throughout history who've 
said, you know, this kind of an ecstatic utterance is communication where they're God. Uh, how do you deal with that kind of criticism? I've heard that before. How do you respond? I believe when, whenever there's a counterfeit, that's absolute proof that there's a real. There would not be a counterfeit unless there was something that was authentic and genuine. And I take my beliefs from the inerrant, infallible word of God. Chapter 14, verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. We generally define prayer as communicating with God, talking with God. He is not addressing any other religions. He is addressing Christians. He addressed Corinth, the message to Corinth to the saints at Corinth, and that's what he's addressing So here. we have a clear disagreement on that, really the interpretation of that scripture. Right. Yeah. You believe that's a rhetorical device to correct a negative I, I believe here. he's correcting the use of and a gift that's being exercised for the religion. So let's uh, we disagree, evidently, on that on the interpretation of that scripture. Are there other passages, uh, Brother Dwight, that you would say, I think this other passage is about the unknown tongue or the prayer language? Is there another passage? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 14. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. It would be of no value uh, for Paul to say, speak to yourself and God, unless it was doing something to benefit the believer. So absolutely, that, that uh, verse right there supports the notion that a believer can pray within, in tongues, and give glory to God. Paul said three things happen. It blesses God. He says it's praise to God. It's thanksgiving to God. And it's general communication with God. All of this is directly in the text. Also, in verses 18 and 19, it says, I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. Paul made that absolutely clear. And then he contrasts speaking in tongues in church versus praying in tongues in private. He said, yet in the church, and I agree with him absolutely, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So you have to ask the question, if he were not going to speak these words publicly in church, where was he going to speak them? And based on the context here, we know Billy Graham says it, Jack McGorman says it, plenty of Southern Baptists with great credentials says, including our president, Dr. Frank Page, the implication here is that it's praying in tongues in private. Straight Dr. Moore, of God. that's... Um Pretty weighty uh, their exhortation. What do you make of well, that? Well, I don't think in the context of what the Apostle Paul is doing, the Apostle Paul here is correcting a specific problem, which is the use of tongues in the context of the church without interpretation. And he's saying tongues profits nothing without prophecy. You have to have interpretation because I think this is revelatory activity. This is the word of God coming to the church to build up the church. It's similar to what you have in, for instance, First uh, John chapter 4. The one who has the Spirit listens to us. The Apostle John says, so that you have the spirit of truth guiding the church into all truth. He's doing this through this specific sign that he mentions from Isaiah 28. You will hear in another tongue. This is God showing and demonstrating something in the life of the church. So once again, a clear difference in just how we interpret these texts. And that uh, your take is it that Paul is using rhetorical devices to really correct a problem about whether or not that's edifying in the in the local church. I don't context. think I'd say rhetorical devices, but I think the Apostle Paul is saying to people, 
you're taking a gift as though the gift is given for your own personal edification. This gift is given for the upbuilding of the church and to build the foundation, the revelatory foundation of the church. He's correcting a very real problem there in the church at Corinth. Well, uh, let's fast forward just a little bit to, uh, let me ask you this one question, Brother Dwight, though. In the context of 1 Corinthians 14, we have this, women keep silent in the churches. Do you believe that uh, women can speak in tongues? I believe it's talking about when tongues, that's uh, translated, becomes prophecy, a prophetic word for the church. Someone has to determine if that word is going to be binding upon the congregation. And I believe that men are to be the final authority in the church, and it would be the males who would say if the prophetic word is going to be binding upon the church. I don't think it was a restriction for women to speak in tongues, provided the interpretation is there. It was a restriction for them to be silent as to the ruling of what was being said. Okay, well, we've heard Dr. Moore say, talk about the, the Old Testament prophecy and the tongues were a sign that Acts 2, this is foreign languages. You know, I went to a church a few weeks ago. My daughter had a, a piano recital, and I was shocked. It was an Episcopalian church, and I got the newsletter. It was Pentecost, and they said, it said, Tongues service on Pentecost Sunday. And I read this article, and it said, We will be speaking in many world languages on Sunday. If you know a world language, we want you to read a, a scripture. If you know a foreign tongue, we want you to read a passage. That was their version of the, 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 the tongues word in the New Testament. I take it that's your view, and that uh, tongues were a, um, though a supernatural right. Right. Uh, gift of the unknown language for the purposes of the sign, but also for missions and evangelism in the Acts 2 context, and then the confirmation of, um, of that ministry elsewhere in the book of Acts. How do you respond to that argument that tongues are always... Can I clarify proper? one yes. thing, though, Jerry? That's not my position, that what happened in an Episcopal church would be the, be the equivalent, right. because this is a supernatural sure. activity of God. This is the sign that's but coming But the tongues God. are a language, and, an yeah, That's right, language. they are a language, and when translated, okay. they, they have the effect of prophecy. So the, the argument, though, that tongues are always... A language to be understood. How do you respond to that? Well, I believe that it is a language, a speech that communicates its cognitive content. All tongues have cognitive uh, intelligence. But the Bible is clear that the one who is speaking is not aware of what is being said. It says speaking to God and not to men. So I don't really get into the debate of language versus uh, aesthetic utterance because of this. If you if you're talking to God and God understands, it's in private. What difference does it make if somebody else doesn't understand? It's a conversation between. So it's a clear difference in interpretation. So let's do this for a minute because we're here at the Southern Baptist Convention talking about Baptist and Southern Baptist. Let's uh, fast forward, if we will, to Baptist history. We could talk about the Reformation of the early church fathers, and uh, let's take a go at this. Either one of you who wants to go first. Could you trace um, your position throughout church history? I'm talking about, uh, because this is a matter of interpretation, evidently. Mm -hmm, sure. uh, trace your position through the Fathers, through the Reformation, and then particularly for Baptist, Baptist in America. Dr. Moore, Brother McKissick, I'll let go it ahead, go sir. first. Okay. All well, right, go ahead. First of all, you, you're, you, this is the argument from silence. And the absence of evidence is not the same as the evidence of absence. You can trace church fathers 
who were very supportive and written in, in favor of this. Uh, but I do not hold because you, you don't find records of where this may have been done at certain points and period in history that it nullifies what the Bible says that I believe when you pray in tongues, the Bible says you build up the individual. He chooses to see that as rhetoric and Paul correcting something, but I'm going to stick with the text. The text never indicates that. I see that more as eisegesis than exegesis. So I don't think any argument from history, uh, we look at how people have argued in history, what has happened in history, you can build a case for just about anything. So that to me is not saying a whole lot. I, I guess I would ask the question, when the Sandy Creek Baptist according to Morgan Edwards' practice, ecstasy, that was vocal, it was sound, it was freedom of expression. Uh, what did that mean? It was, it was something that was incoherent. I wasn't there. Wait, I cannot wait, wait, tell wait. you it was sound. A follow-up question. On what basis would you say ecstasy was incoherent or that it was language that was incoher- incoherent? On what what but, basis would you say that? He heard something. It was visual. It was verbal. It was vocal. He described it as ecstasy so he would have to tell us exactly what he heard and what he meant but he described that worship as an emotional outburst outburst he said they were dancing uh in worship he said it was loud worship and from what i have observed people who are loud in worship dance in worship and people who are very emotional in worship and they also embrace women preaching in worship those persons also embrace praying in tongues in practice. Dr. Moore, how do you respond to that? We have no evidence that Sandy Creek or any of these revivals practiced speaking in tongues, much less a a I did not argue that. But that's the issue. I mean, you have, when you have, uh, when you have ecstatic groanings, for instance, I have no biblical problem with that at all. You have people under conviction of sin. And so you have the preaching of the gospel. You have people groaning out in agony for relief of their consciences. I think that that is perfectly appropriate, and I am sure that happened multiple times, not just in the Sandy Creek experience, but all over the place. We're on the same team on a lot of things here. I, I think the issue is, though, when you try to say, well, the Sandy Creek experience means that there's a charismatic stream in Southern Baptist life, I don't think that you can say that. As, as historians on the left, like Walter Sheridan and Leon Macbeth, and on the right, like Gregory Wills, I think have both demonstrated Sandy Creek was not uh, a charismatic group. It was a, a group in which you had the preaching of the gospel, calling sinners to repentance, and you had sinners who were responding in emotional ways to the preaching of the gospel. That's a very different kind of an argument. I don't think that necessarily means that you're that you're wrong uh, just because it's not coming out of Sandy Creek. It could be that, for instance, as some charismatic and vineyard groups say, God now at these last days is pouring out his spirit in a new and unique kind of a way. I just think if that's the argument we're going to make, we need to make it intentionally and say this is what we believe to be happening here. In reality, you have this type of move in Baptist life happening only very recently. As James Leo Garrett, Baptist theologian, has said, of all of the streams that you can see of tensions in Baptist life right now, the charismatic stream is the one that is almost entirely new. This is a new debate. That does not mean that one side is right or wrong, but it does mean that the historical argument um, is, is a little more difficult to make. I want to ask a couple of practical questions back to the foreign language issue for just a moment because it seems to me, Brother Dwight, that in a lot of these churches which have uh, the private prayer language, uh, there will, in fact, actually be um, in the public worship service some of the speaking of tongues. And I want to ask you just straight out if you endorse or you would allow for um, 
the speaking of tongues in a public worship service uh, today in a Southern Baptist context. And I'm going to ask Dr. Moore a similar question in a minute. But what's your view on that? Absolutely not. You, uh, in our bulletin every Sunday, it says that here is what we believe about tongues, exactly what Paul says. We don't need the Greek. We don't need anybody to explain it to us. Uh, to believe if some of what he's saying, the average Christian could never reach those understandings because you cannot read the Bible and draw the conclusions that Dr. Moore is articulating. We say that only two or three are to speak, and then with an interpreter. If there is no interpreter, we would not allow tongue speaking. We don't have public tongue speaking in our church. Mm. It's, it's absolutely clear from the text. Dr. Boyle, I want to ask you this position. We talked about cessationism earlier. Do you mm-hmm. believe it's theoretically possible to um, have um, that kind of a supernatural missionary confirmation gift today on some foreign missionary field? Do you feel like that uh, that gift might still appear in that fashion for missions or evangelism? Absolutely, but not as the gift of tongues. I think what you have happening at the, at the gift of, with the gift of tongues is a sign gift that is prophetic utterance from God. I think with the closing of the canon, you no longer have God speaking in that way. He's spoken to us once and for all through his son in his word. And so I think, yes, could you have someone who washes up on a, on a shore of a people group whose language he does not know? God supernaturally gives that person the ability to speak in that language? Certainly. Who wouldn't count on it. That's why we train our missionaries to speak the language of that person. But God can do that. God is sovereign. God is able to do whatever he chooses and whatever he wishes. And, and I certainly, uh, when someone tells me I've had that experience, praise the Lord. This is Jerry Johnson Live. We're at the Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio, Texas. And we're talking with two leading Southern Baptists about the practice of tongue speaking. Is it a private prayer language? Is it a foreign language? Is it appropriate in today's church. We're talking to Dr. Russell Moore. He's dean of the School of Theology, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're talking to Pastor Dwight McKissick. He leads the Cornerstone Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas. He's a trustee at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Well, let's let's talk about uh, cooperation and let's talk about sort of the practical um, implications that of, of this disagreement. We have an interpretive disagreement, and as I see it, and, and um, we could probably spend hours on that, but let's talk about now how to flesh this out in our denomination. And I suspect there are other churches and other denominations, you know, that are wrestling with this. Christians wrestle with all sorts of issues. But let's talk about the Baptist faith and message statement. And I know some, uh, Dr. Moore, have said, look, the Baptist faith and message does not take a position on this. That's right. And so they believe, you know, for our mission agencies, for, for seminaries, to really make this a matter of employment, a guideline um, of exclusion, that they're going beyond the Baptist faith and message. So I want to ask you, do you think the Baptist faith and message is a maximal kind of a statement, or do you believe it's a minimal kind of a statement, and particularly apply it to this I issue? I think it's a minimal kind of a statement to enable cooperation. I think that individual entities are going to have to ask, what's our task and what's our calling? What do we have to do? I mean, there's not, as my colleague Herschel York at Southern Seminary has said, there is not anything in the Baptist faith and message about snake handling. 
But I think the International Baptist, the International Mission Board, the Southern Baptist Convention, has the right to wonder whether or not we ought to appoint a snake handler as a missionary. I'm not equating snake handling with Brother McKissick's right. argument. What I am saying, though, is that that's not something that's included in the Baptist faith and message. Frankly, there are all kinds of issues raised by the charismatic movement that are not addressed in the Baptist faith and message, and I don't think should be. Being slain in the spirit, for instance, the laughing revival in uh, in the Toronto Vineyard movement, uh, several other issues at the IMB, some of them. The IMB has had to address because of issues on the mission field. IMB has the power to do that. They have the authority to do that. Indeed, they have the responsibility to do that. What we need to pray for is that they would have prudence and wisdom and judgment to understand how to do that. And it's not an easy thing. I think that that means that you've got to have IMB trustees and IMB missionaries and IMB leadership on their knees in prayer, seeking the face of God, saying what's the best way that we ought to cooperate together on these things. Pastor McKissick, I mean, how do you respond to that? I mean, times change. There are always practical issues, and boards and agencies say, you know, this is becoming a negative trend in the church, or this is a positive uh, development, and we're going to adjust our policies, our hiring policies. And the Baptist faith and message certainly could not be um, the maximal because there are other things we just don't allow uh, for our employees. So how do you feel about that? Several things. First of all, praying in tongues of private has nothing to do with the modern-day charismatic movement. It has all to do with the inerrant and fallible a word of God it has nothing to do with Azusa Street. It has to do with when I pray in tongues, I speak to God and not to man, period. So I don't like kind of sort of mixing it up with things that none of us would appreciate some of the excesses of the charismatic movement. What I'm talking about is based on the word of God. Secondly, uh, it's taxation without representation. When you invite churches to join the Southern Baptist Convention based on this doctrinal statement, and then you impose rules after the fact, don't have the courage, the character, and the integrity to have the convention to make this rule, but you backdoor these decisions through organizations, and you want us to send you money after Southern Baptist professors have taught us the validity of this, Jack McGorman, Jack Gray, and then you get us to come into the convention, and you come up with a rule that disqualify me. NAM would not hire me as a church planner. We had about 2,000 folk in church last Sunday. We got a $5 million budget. We baptized over 100 people, and but yet I don't, and I believe in every letter of the Baptist faith and message statement, but you disqualify me as a, getting a job simply because I believe in and happen to practice praying in tongues. This is reprehensible. Mm. This is discrimination. This is, this is an integrity issue when you would take that document and fire people because they went sign the document, and then now you tell us it means nothing. Well, let's talk about this in a minute. I want to expand this a little more. You know, Dr. Moore, Lifeway did a study some mm-hmm. time ago, and they found that apparently in this study mm-hmm. that a majority of Southern Baptist pastors believe that the private prayer language, glossolalia experience, is a legitimate New mm-hmm. Testament mm-hmm. expression. So you teach at a Southern Baptist seminary, and I, I think you all would have a policy on this. Um, I don't know that there's a written policy. But in any case, this, what, his appeal just a moment ago, would you react to that and really to this study? Uh, because it would seem like what he says about representation if that poll is correct, mm-hmm. I mean, how would you respond to that? Well, I'm here to represent the marginalized minority of Southern Baptists and just <laughs> plead for our freedom to dissent. No, I think that... But the, I won't the, kick you out to convince okay, well, Please don't I'm, kick me I'm out. I'm not going to kick you out. I'm not going to kick you out. I think that what you have happening in this, in this study, I don't, I don't know uh, about, the, about the study and the accuracy of the study. I assume it's accurate. 
What I do say is the answer to a theoretical question is very different from what Southern Baptists are actually doing in their churches. So it's one thing to say, yeah, I believe God can give people a private prayer language. Another thing to say, we're going to teach this, encourage this, have this take place in our local churches. I think that's really the key issue. If Southern Baptists decide we want to be a partially charismatic, a fully charismatic, a third-wave Pentecostal, whatever they want to do, Southern Baptists will do that. We just need to make sure that we're getting there intentionally. We need to make sure that we're doing this uh, not simply by kind of moving with the flow of the evangelical movement, but we're actually intentionally making a case for where we're going to go. Agencies and boards have to make decisions about employment all of the time. There are churches in the Southern Baptist Convention that have absolutely no problem with one wife at a time, multiple marriages and divorces, and yet our International Mission Board has to decide, what are we going to do with somebody who's been divorced and remarried? We have, again, issues. We have some Southern Baptist churches that practice being slain in the spirit. Our International Mission Board has to say, are we going to appoint missionaries? Not mentioned in the Baptist Faith and Message. Are we going to appoint missionaries who would do that? That is a legitimate question to ask. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live from the Southern Baptist Convention. We've got Dr. Russell Moore and Pastor Dwight McKissick here with us. We've got a microphone over here. We're going to have a staff member over there to man that microphone. If you have a question of one of these men, we're going to allow the audience to kind of enter into this town hall sort of a setting. But uh, while we're waiting for that, Brother McKissick, let me ask you this question. You've looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. I want to ask you about a couple of passages, your take on them. Uh, When Paul says the tongues of angels, he talks about the tongues of angels. Do you believe that's uh, the, the unknown tongue uh, the private prayer language. What do you think about that? I'm not really sure. I base my beliefs on what Paul said in in verse two. When a person prays in tongues, they're talking to God and not men, and no man understands him. I found it interesting in the International Mission Board guideline. They said that the New Testament uh, always embraces prayer, which is understanding. I read that. I was shocked. The Bible says no one understands well, let me, okay. this kind of a prayer. And Paul says, my mind is unfruitful, meaning that I don't understand what is being said. Jesus, in John 11, groaned in the spirit. And it's hard to translate that into Japanese or French. And so, I, whether it's, it's an angelic Is language, it your position that these groaning passages are to be equated with glossolalia? I don't know. It's my position that what persons do in their private prayer closet is nobody else's business. One other question along this line. I'll turn it back to Dr. Moore. Paul says, uh, I, I will sing in the Spirit, and I will sing with understanding. I will pray in the Spirit. I will pray with understanding. And my question for you to this, are those contrasting statements? Are they all the same thing? That is, is he saying that's two kinds of singing and two kinds of praying? Or is he actually saying, no, when I sing in the Spirit, it's also singing with understanding. I pray in the Spirit, it's praying with understanding. Understanding What's your take on that? a language understood in the Spirit, in the, this text, the context would certainly suggest a language not understood. Okay, let's go to Dr. Moore because he's... I think there are two or three things there. I want to right. see what you have to say about that. Well, I think that the argument he's using there could just as easily be used 
with 1 Corinthians 13 and say the Apostle Paul is commending burning your body. He's saying, if I give my body to be burned, I mean, what he's doing is saying to the church at Corinth, you all are prizing this gift of tongues. You're getting up and using this gift of tongues without interpretation. You shouldn't do it. This is why you ought to have interpretation so that you can have the communication of God to his people, the upbuilding of the church. You don't want unbelievers coming in. If they hear tongues not being interpreted, this is a sign to unbelievers they think you're mad. He says, instead, build up and edify the church. Paul is correcting something so that when you take 1 Corinthians 14.2 out of its context of the rest of 1 Corinthians 14, well, yes, you can make that argument, but you could take any passage of Scripture out of context and, and make an argument. All right, looks like we have someone at the microphones. Let's sort of just open this up. A question, a comment, a follow-up to something that's already been said. Uh, introduce yourself and your question. Uh, my name's Chris Keithley. I'm with First Baptist Church of Riverview. And first thing I want to say is I appreciate the dialogue. I think this is who we are as Southern Baptists. We can agree to disagree. We hold to the Word of God, and we have differing thoughts and perspectives. And that's who we are, been, who've been historically. The question I have is, being in Florida, I was sent uh, four CDs, and it said, a Baptist is, and it's explained four things that were, quote, not. We're not Reformed, or we're not Calvinistic, we don't believe in tongues. We don't believe in liberalism, whatever that was defined as. And uh, my question is, do both of these gentlemen agree that as Baptists, we can agree to disagree, whether Reformed and Calvinistic or non-Calvinist, whether tongues or not tongues, or is there not room in the camp for differing opinions? Well, I think the question would be, uh, how big is that camp and where you draw that line? Um, either one of you want to respond to that. Well, I, I agree. There should be room in the camp. I think ideally we should affirm um, various viewpoints as it relates to praying in tongues and not having employment policies surrounding it. I think the schools ought to teach cessationism, semi-cessationism, continualism, and uh, allow the student to uh, they not seminary wouldn't be an indoctrination camp. It would be a place where a student is taught to critically think and arrive at conclusions for themselves, and our convention should be uh, allowed room for all of these various positions in the life of our uh, convention. I think the Calvinists and the non-Calvinists ought to be welcome in Southern Baptist Let me ask you this just as a follow-up. Do you think there should be any difference between membership and fellowship and the question of leadership? Because when we're talking about these policies, a lot of it's about leadership positions. So should there be a difference between membership and fellowship uh, or the question of leadership? Absolutely not. A Baptist figure made the statement, if you believe in tongues, you can uh, sit on the train, but you can't drive the train. And that reminded me of what my people went through when we could just sit on the bus, but at the back of the bus. I, the, the idea of asking us to support the carpenter program and have tiers of leadership based on whether you're a Calvinist or he said we're all charismatics, I agree with that, uh, charis, grace, mata, uh, gift, it's a gift of grace and all Baptists are charismatic because all of us who are saved have a gift and to disqualify people based on them being a Calvinist, a charismatic or what have you would be very much uh, unfair, unbiblical. Uh, prejudicial, prejudicial, discriminatory, and unbaptistic. Dr. Moore, would you answer that question as well? Any difference for you between 
membership, fellowship, and the question of leadership. Absolutely. You know, I do this presentation sometimes at churches called The Man on the Island, where I get up and ask, what about somebody who's on a desert island who's never heard the gospel? He's 35 years old. He's dying tomorrow. What happens to him? He's never heard of Jesus. You'd be surprised how many Southern Baptist members of Southern Baptist churches say he's going to heaven. That is absolutely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a Southern Baptist tither, probably. That's a Southern Baptist who's a member of a church. That's not a Southern Baptist that we ought to appoint to the International Mission Board. That's somebody that we ought not to send out in a, in a place of leadership. So, of course, we all have a difference between membership in a local church and, uh, and leadership. I think the issue of the bus and who's driving the bus, I think the real issue is where's the bus going? I think that's where we need to have the conversation. And frankly, I would I think there's room within Southern Baptist life for this kind of a conversation. I would not move to remove Cornerstone Baptist Church from the local association. You I just can't drive the bus. I would not. Well, it, you can drive the bus. You're you're driving the bus. You're a, you're a trustee at a at a Southern Baptist uh, convention. I have my chin chin chin. The question is the question is where you want to go. I think that's the real issue. Where is that bus going? We're going to keep talking about that. That's Jerry Johnson Live. We're here with Dr. Russell Moore, Pastor Dwight McKissick at the Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio. We're talking about the issue of glossolalia, tongue speaking. What is it? Private prayer language? Foreign language? Is it right for your church, for you personally as a Christian? We have a question, I think, over here at the microphone. Uh, State your name and your question, if you would. Uh, my name is Herschel York. I teach at Southern Seminary along with Dr. Moore. Uh, and I would just like to ask uh, Brother McKissick, you know, Paul says when we pray in a tongue, and, and again, I, I think he's using that correctively, not not prescriptively, but descriptively of what's going on. And, Based on what text? Well, the fact that he says when you pray in a tongue, your mind is unfruitful. And my question to you is, when you pray, is that what you're going for? Absolutely not, but I believe that's edification because the Word of God says there's edification when you pray in tongue. And I don't read into the text negative when he says in verse 5 that the person who's prays in tongue is being edified. In Jude 20, it says, build yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. If you pray in English in private, you're being edified. If you read the Bible in private, you're being edified. I don't understand the hysteria, the paranoia and the discrimination against believers praying in tongues in private. Leave them alone. Well, then explain to me this statement about being your mind being unfruitful. I mean, your perspective is that that is what you're going for. The Penn State study, and it amazed me that places like Penn State can embrace this, the validity of this. Uh, the Pew poll says 20% of Christians around America believe in and practice tongues. We probably have a similar percentage who have other gifts of the spirit listed in the Bible, but it makes it very clear that something is happening in the brain when a person is praying in tongues, and basically their minds are unfruitful. It's, it's validation of what the Word of God says here. If you don't want it, fine. I'll meet you in heaven. <laughs> Just don't bother me. <laughs> Let me ask you this as a follow-up question. Uh, uh, we are we have the Lifeway poll, which is very interesting. Apparently, most Southern Baptists pastors when asked think well this could be legitimate i think this might be legitimate it is legitimate uh, over half of them say they think that uh, they asked the seminary students and i think less than half said that when they asked the seminary students but uh, dr moore alluded to something a moment ago i'd like you to respond to but the de facto way those pastors run their churches is 
the majority of Southern Baptist churches still will not allow for that kind of an expression in a worship service, in a Sunday school class. So uh, in theory, they are for this. But in fact, that's not happening in Southern Baptist churches. And people would get very uncomfortable. And how do you feel about that? And, you know, what would be your strategy on that? Because that is the case, as I understand it out there. Sounds like we're lining up with the Bible. We believe what the Bible says about it. But we encourage it for private devotion, not for public display. Uh, I wasn't really surprised at the poll because I think the conservative researchers led us to believe that you can trust this Bible and you don't have to have a Ph.D. in Greek to understand it. The Holy Spirit can be your teacher. And if you just simply trust what the Word says, you would reach the conclusion of the findings of the poll. Thank God for the conservative researchers. So people who disagree with you don't believe in the inerrancy of, of Scripture and don't, don't believe in It's my belief is? that it is impossible on the issue of tongues to say you don't believe speaking to God in these texts involves prayer. And on this issue, I think it's impossible to believe in inerrancy of Scripture. Sure, you can believe in inerrancy of Scripture. I'm sure you do. But when you tell me this is not, when the, the Bible talks about I'm praying to God and you give me arguments why that's not true, that's the same way homosexual community read a passage about homosexuality and say, oh, that's not what Paul meant. It's the exact same hermeneutical approach. That's how they arrive at it's okay to be a homosexual. They say Dr. Moore you, you can't respond. trust what you well, read. Well, I could say Solomon had 900 wives. Go, go therefore and do you likewise. No. We have to interpret this in terms of the context in which it was written, its place in redemptive history. That's, that's what we do all the time when we're interpreting the Word of God, not simply taking out proof text and saying this isolated is the point. Now, I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but I'm saying what we have to say, we all have to interpret the Word of God. That's what being a confessional people is all about, not simply saying, as the Jehovah's Witnesses do, oh, he's the firstborn of all creation. It means he's a created being. No. What does the word of God mean? And that's the conversation that we're trying to have right now. So that's the debate. That's the hermeneutical question. What does the text mean? But I, I will say this, Jerry, that I, I think that's the, the part that's a little bit disturbing to me. I, I love Brother McKissick, and I'm glad to have this conversation. But when you start saying, if you just believe the inerrant word of God, I mean, that's, that's part of our confessional parameter of, of cooperation is those of us who believe in the inerrancy of the word of God. Now you have some saying, if you believed the word of God, you would come to this position. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you can have people who believe the word of God, who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, who come to different understandings of this. That means we're going to have to try to figure out how we work together. But when you say, if you believe in inerrancy, you believe in this, then I have to say, well, leave me alone. Let me ask you this, Brother Dwight, because if it is a question of interpretation, not just inspiration, you know, is this the Word of God, but what does the Word mean? Then isn't it helpful to say, you know, what have Southern Baptist, Baptist, Reformers, Evangelical, the Fathers said about this text and this practice? And, and to say, you know, I don't interpret Scripture in isolation, I interpret it there's a long line of, of Christian scholars and leaders. And does it bother you when you think of the, the, the silence on this interpretation, really, for the last 1,900 years? You really don't see this practice for the first 1,900 years of church history. How do you feel about that? Same way I, I felt when Southern Baptists passionately argued for over 200 years while this Bible taught the correct interpretation well, that people who have darker complexion should be slaves, mm -hmm. they argued it, they preached it, they believed it, they were absolutely wrong about it. 
And because there is no sign, and I said earlier, an absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. And so it, it, it's no problem to me at all. we got a question over here, I think, at the microphone for either one of these men. Okay, my name is Brad Crawford. I am from Dallas, Texas. And my question is for Dr. Moore. Earlier you brought up uh, the apostolic age and the ending of the speaking of tongues and other spiritual things. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering one thing. uh, Define uh, the apostolic age so people can more understand that. And also um, with that, with the spiritual gifts that were going on that maybe ended, Mm -hmm. could the uh, people that were able to do that, such as Stephen, um, how were they able to do that? And if it just ended with the apostolic age, then uh, my question is, did it just all of a sudden just die out while they're in the middle of it? Mm-hmm. or? Well, I think the issue is I, I do not believe in the cessation of miraculous gifts. I believe in miracles. As a colleague of mine at Southern said one time, if you ever hear that I'm sick, I want you to pray like a Pentecostal. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with that. I believe that God heals. I believe that God works miracles. I believe God does extraordinary things. I think that what we have here is the end of revelatory gifts, which I believe prophecy and tongues in this sense is, is, what, is what I'm talking about. You have revelatory gifts in which Jesus is saying in John 14 through 16 that he's going to guide the early church into all truth, the formation of a canon. You've got early churches who need divine revelation. They need to hear from the word of God. I think now you have got assembling for us this more certain word, this rock foundation of apostles and prophets that we now have in the Holy Scripture. God has spoken to us. We have the prophetic word of God. It's right here in our hands. We must give heed to it. So I think that's the issue. It's an issue of revelatory gifts, not an issue of miraculous or non-miraculous gifts, which I think is a false distinction. You're listening to Jerry Johnson live from San Antonio, Texas. We're at the Southern Baptist Convention with Dr. Russell Moore, Pastor Dwight McKissick. We've got time for one more question, I think, right over here. My name is Allison. I'm from Texas, and I had a question for Brother McKissick. You spoke earlier of um, when you're speaking in tongues that your mind is unfruitful. Christ talks about we're not supposed to use vain repetition. How does that vanity fit in with the unfruitfulness of your mind when you're speaking in tongues? First of all, I don't consider it vanity. These were the words of the Apostle Paul. That when a boy, if I pray in a tongue, and some say if I pray, that's hypothetical. Paul also said, if Christ be not risen. So unless we're going to believe the resurrection is hypothetical, we cannot believe that this verse is hypothetical. Here it is right here, praying in tongue. Yet we have a, a group that's saying there is no biblical, tangible basis for praying in tongue. I'm sorry, I don't want to offend you, Dr. Moore. You like me, I like you. But to me, that is a complete denial of the word of God. When you read that verse, it says that's not really what it meant. And so when he says, you pray in tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. It means exactly what it says. My mind does not comprehend what's coming out of my mouth. Simple as that. But I'm built up in the most holy faith as I do it. And I don't deny that you have praying in tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You have praying in tongues, oh, speaking in tongues. Wow. What, you don't, what you don't have, what you don't, what you don't have is a personal private prayer language. You have something being given for the edification of the church, which is why Paul is correcting it, which is why Paul is saying you must have interpretation, you must have the building up of the church. The issue is not, is there praying in tongues here? The issue is what's happening with the praying in tongues? For what purpose is it given? 
It is not given simply for the personal edification of the believer. It is given specifically for the building up of the body through the Word of God. All right. We're just about out of time. I think we've got five or six minutes left on the air. And here's what I want you men to do is just uh, make some closing statements. We're here at the Southern Baptist Convention. And let's uh, back up for a moment and just for a minute or so talk about... um, your desire, your prayer, your hope for Southern Baptist really on this issue, you know, what's next? Uh, how do we come to some sort of reproachment or agreement on this issue so we can, you know, work together for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God? Brother McKissick, would you go first? That's a great question. I think we start from the basis or the premise. And by the way, this is my one wife for life. My yeah. only, she was 19 when I married her, 29. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary in Paris. Uh-huh. Welcome here. Yes. Amen, amen. Uh, the text says, forbid not to speak in tongues. And what really scares me about the IMB policies and others and where this convention I thought was headed before the Lifeway poll, which breathed new life into me. Wow. That I thought this convention was headed to have a cessationist convention and forbid speaking in tongues, period. And so what I hope will happen is that we learn uh, to allow all of these positions to coexist. Uh, I think there's uh, something to be said in all of these uh, positions and allow each church, each student uh, to reach their own conclusions about it. But uh, when persons want to be missionaries, uh, had, had they asked me in 83 when I got money from the Southern Baptist to plant our church, did I speak in tongues? My answer would have been yes. And it happened to me on Southwestern campus. They would not have funded me. And consequently, we wouldn't be Southern Baptist today. Is that what we really want? We want people like Jason Epps who go to Golden Gate and learn in class that tongues is a valid gift. And he answers the question honestly. And then they tell him, we cannot fund you as a missionary. Is that the kind of people Southern Baptists really want to be? Dr. McKissick, do you want to see a reversal of policies on public speaking in tongues on the mission field as Absolutely well? Absolutely not. I totally support the well, policies that were in place prior but to. But why? Because if you, if you say forbid not speaking in tongues and the International Mission Board is forbidding speaking in tongues, I don't understand how that works. If the International Mission Board is already forbidding people from speaking in tongues, how is that then right? Very easy. What they're saying, don't go on the mission field and get up before a congregation and start speaking in tongues. Same thing with our high people. I want to know that you're not going to do that uh, because we attract a lot of charismatic leaning church because of all the publicity where I stand. I have to let them know that I am not a classical charismatic. Here are the, here's the Bible rule. Here is where we stand. So after, the Bible forbids publicly speaking in tongues. It has some strict requirements, and I think Paul is discouraging it. Well, we're almost out of time. I want to give you an opportunity for a closing thought or comment, Dr. I think the Bible has strict requirements about speaking in tongues, but but it says speaking in tongues in the context of the church. The IMB has a policy on speaking in tongues. I think with with the argument that you're using, you have some people in Southern Baptist churches who are full-blown charismatics, and yet they cannot serve on the mission field. That's already a policy. I'm not saying that's a right policy or a wrong policy. I'm saying it's a complex thing that the International Mission Board has to work out. I don't want to work it out for the IMB. I want the IMB to work that out in prayer and in fasting and in cooperation with one another coming up with that kind of a policy. Policy already exists in all kinds of ways. That has to be the case with all of our entities and all of our boards as they figure out what's the best way to cooperate together for this particular purpose. 
I don't think that we ought to have a cessationist Southern Baptist Convention. I don't think we ought to have a charismatic Southern Baptist Convention. I think Dwight McKissick and Russell Moore can both exist within the Southern Baptist Convention. I think, though, that just because we have these differences of views, that means that sometimes our conversations are going to be more complex when we ask, but what does that mean for who we're going to send out as missionaries and what they're going to do, who we're going to have teaching in our seminaries? It's not an easy question, and we have to answer that question together. Well, one of the great things about live radio is that it is live, but we're up on a hard break here. This is Jerry Johnson live from the Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio, Texas. We've been talking with Dr. Russell Moore and, Dr. and Pastor Dwight McKissick about the issue of tongues. We've talked about 1 Corinthians 14. This show is about the Christian worldview, but the very next chapter is chapter 15, and Paul did emphasize we want to talk in words that you can understand today, because Paul goes on to say, I declare unto you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it? How that Christ died for your sins, according to the Scripture. You need to know that if you're listening today on the air. Christ died for your sins, that you might be forgiven, that you might be saved, that you might have peace with God. That wasn't the end. He was buried. He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. This shows us that the Father received that payment. For our sins. This shows us that Jesus defeated sin, defeated the devil, defeated the grave. This shows us the victory of salvation. That's the good news. That's the gospel. If you don't know Christ, look to Jesus today. Believe in Jesus today. Turn to Jesus today. And I know these men sitting here would agree with that message Absolutely. for sure. This is Jerry Johnson live from Criswell College. Today we're at the Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio, Texas. God bless you, and we'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m., for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.